Just a heads up, before we get into this episode, there's some graphic language in this one. So, listener discretion is advised. Uh, I saw Jesus in the white light, you know, the white tunnel. And my thought was, he's not holding his hands out. Maybe he's not ready for me yet. Previously on Inferno. 911, where's your emergency? Help, 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 help. Drive down away from the fire. But this extended drought has resulted in high wildfire danger. We said our goodbyes to each other and said, see you in heaven. God, please help us, Lord. Please send rain. We just evacuated the entire city of Gatlinburg. When night falls on November 28th, the city is given completely to fire. Oh my God, the whole hill is on fire. God, the flames are just, there's no way we could drive through that. I said, fast your seatbelt, we gotta go. I knew we only had minutes. And choices are made on the hillsides of Gatlinburg that mean life. Okay, and you said something about a possible fatality. You said there's a there's possibly a deceased person there? They believe, they believe there's somebody on the road that's deceased. Or death. Fire rained down from the hillside beside the motel like a bunch of embers falling from the sky, huge, look like lava. Every minute and second counts for people fleeing for their lives. From WBIR Channel 10 in Knoxville, a series of stories where we look back at the tragedy of the Gatlinburg wildfires. What was lost? What went wrong? And how we've rebuilt since the flames. I'm Robin Wilhoyt. And I'm Madison Stacy. This is Inferno, the Gatlinburg disaster. The choices presented to people trying to escape the fire seemed impossible. You can drive through the fire, they're told. You can run barefoot down the mountain, through gravel that's turned to ember. You can get to the nearest body of water, maybe try a creek, and hope for the best. Fire all around us here. We're going to have to run, get in the car, get the hell out of here. Okay. 819 is turning the house down right now. Is anyone able oh to God. get out and move the tree? Is anyone able to get out and move the tree? No. I don't have a chainsaw. Okay. We'll get them as, as fast as they can get up there, okay? One quick thing you need to know, though. Some of the people are saying that if the fire gets too close, they're going to go inside the pool. They're going to go inside whatever they need to do if they feel threatened. Some survivors, like Reba Williams, who you met last episode, even remember the desperate state of emergency personnel who came to rescue them. We met the fire chief who, uh, of the, the crew who pulled us out. And he said, I sent two trucks up the mountain, and neither of them could make it. And he said, we thought you were gone. And he said, when that 3.30 call came through, we realized you were still there. And um, he said, firemen don't give up. And he decided to send a smaller truck. 
and, uh, and they made it. And uh, they said one of the uh, firemen who pulled us out that his helmet melted uh, because the heat was so intense as he was, uh, he was getting us out. That night, everyone in Gatlinburg, the tourists on vacation, people relaxing in their homes, emergency personnel trying to rescue them, all had to make fast, impossible choices to survive. And the people you're about to hear from did survive the Gatlinburg disaster. But not everyone who fled with them did. Intense. I think my story is so dramatic, mm-hmm. you know, because I ran for my life. At Baskins Creek Road, the fire met Linda Morrow as she slept. When I woke up, my little cabin was already on fire. You woke up to it on fire? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why I have these scars, see, right here. And I'm proud of these scars. This arm and this arm, too, and this foot, because... Uh, I ran. The woods were on fire across the street. Everything was on fire. This side, the, everything, both sides of the street were on fire. I hadn't realized that it had, had burnt me, physically yes. touched oh, you. Yes. Her husband Dave was out of town, visiting his mom in the hospital. So she was alone with her three cats in the home that she'd spent years crafting into another one of her art pieces. Linda's retired now, but she was a renowned artist for years in Gatlinburg. She drew much of her inspiration from the Great Smoky Mountains, which were just across her road. The walls of her home were lined with art pieces she made herself, irreplaceable collector's items, cherished things she inherited from loved ones. The fire took them all. Because I had no time to get anything. Not, not my purse, nothing. Keys, nothing. Uh, and thankfully I was in my mom's old nightgown. <laughs> and I had on plastic shoes. So Linda runs for her life through the inferno, leaving behind the home she adores, the artwork she created, and the rescue kittens she adopted. Lost three kitties, rescued kitties, during that, and I could hear one of them out here. She's still haunted by the cries of her kittens who died. As she tells me this story three years later, the lone survivor of that bunch meows in the background. She knew what was coming, and... uh, but I had to take off running. I couldn't get my car out because I didn't have my keys, couldn't get in gear. I tried, but it wouldn't have mattered because about three quarters of the way, all the way down the road, there was big trees had come down and blocked the road. And there was about six vehicles stopped there, mm-hmm. people trying to, you know, get Just out. right down, yes, down that way. I can still show you the trees. And the whole time I was running, I kept, going, Jesus, help me, Jesus, help me, Jesus, help me, over and over and over and over, and I'm here telling you this story. Out loud? You said oh, yes. <laughs> Out loud. How, sorry, but like, how big were the, I mean, it was just everything completely everything. on fire. The trees all the way up. There was no pocket of green anywhere? Oh, no, no, honey, the whole thing was on fire. Linda runs through the burning forest, about three quarters of a mile down, to the end of Baskins Creek Road. She sees other cars, other people, but she's far from safe yet. And even when I got to those vehicles that were blocked by the trees, I thought about keeping on running, but it was all fire all the way down to Cherokee Orchard. Everything was on fire. And uh, I I was already burnt, so I I ran to the first vehicle and asked if I could come in with them, and they said yes. And everybody was on their technology begging for help. 
If you want to break your heart, listen to some of the 911 calls. 911, where's your emergency? We are on Baskin's Creek Road in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and we are all about to die if you guys don't send a truck out here. There's about a dozen of us and a baby. Both ways, please, please. Where are you at on on the Baskin? 610 Baskin's Creek Road. We are all stuck back here. <laughs> like the whole block. People are all, all over. Okay. Hurry, please, please. Baskin's Creek Road? Baskin's Creek Road. People cannot imagine what it was like. I saw, it was like a movie. It, the, the wind was coming from this way. That's why this side got burnt worse. <clears throat> and it, I saw it pick up piles of debris and just <clears throat> throw. It was like fireballs. Oh, as you're yes, running. fireballs. You betcha. Tennessee State Troopers showed up, the special unit. And oh, you just can't imagine the relief, the joy. And uh, I had to be partially carried out because I was pretty burnt. And uh, there was like hot coals all over the road, the pavement. Electric they had turned like the rock to ember. Yes. Are you surprised that you survived that night? Yes, grateful, very grateful. And, and I credit Jesus. He wasn't ready for me yet. You talk about deepening your faith. Yes, ma'am. Because uh, I told him, you know, the whole time I was running for my life, I kept saying, Jesus, help me. Over and over and over and over. And we all react in different ways, right? There was uh, some people sitting out of their cart because it was kind of like in the slope that was kind of sheltering from the wind, mm. which probably saved our butts too. And uh, this one little old lady, I don't know who she was, but she was sitting there on the, the side of the bank and she had a box of wine with her. And she was offering everybody some wine and that woman was cussing a blue streak. <laughs> in the middle of the fire? In the middle of the fire. <laughs> oh my god! And the troopers remember her, you know. I mean, <laughs> she's literally drinking wine while the yes, yes, ma'am. She's being generous with it. Linda Morrow's story of survival is terrifying, but she was working with an advantage not everyone had as the fire spread. She lived in Gatlinburg. When the fire descended onto her home, Linda intuitively had an idea of where she wanted to end up when she ran down Baskins Creek Road. Her survival instincts were guided by an intimate knowledge of where she was at. But because Gatlinburg's a tourist town, not everyone knew where they were as well as Linda, and that worsened their confusion that night. Nine one one, where's our emergency? I'm stuck in a mountain in a cabin. Oh, in Luke Road, and the fire's not far from my cabin. We didn't know none of this was so 
on going on? Can you get you out of the cabin? If you listen closely, the woman says they're on vacation. Can you get out of the cabin? We're out of the cabin. We're in the car, but there's trees blocking the road. I can't pass. Okay, and you're at Loop Road at Chimney Top Way? Uh, no, we're, at, uh, we're at Loop Road. Uh, uh, best, oh, shit. I want to introduce you now to a man we know only as Ronnie. We've never been able to get a hold of him, but in 2016, the fires interrupted one of the most important weeks of his life, his honeymoon. Oh my God. And just so you know, we can't play all of Ronnie's calls to 911 from that night because he understandably called so many times, but we are going to play some of them because they offer a lot of insight into what people were thinking and feeling as they were trapped on the mountain. It's all around us. Okay, I'm just... And the trees are starting to burn up top, lady. Please, 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 Harry. Please. Wait, wait, and we can't even catch your fire. We are done. Oh, my God. Please, man. We can't hardly breathe up here. My partner's talking to me. They're talking to them right now while I'm talking to you, okay? She's talking to the fire department. They're coming to you emergency traffic, okay? Oh, my God, man. Oh, my Oh my God! Oh my God! Why did they warn us? 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 Okay. And you don't have any type of vehicle that you could go over? Are they big trees? Oh, ma'am. Oh my God. Oh my God. Nobody. 
Well, it happened so quick. Honestly, it happened all over the county, and it happened so quick that we didn't have time to even prepare for it. So, it's, and there's so many rental cabins. It's. I know that's not a good excuse, and I apologize for that. But that's basically the reason that it wasn't done. Oh my God, ma'am! Please send somebody, somebody up here with us. Oh my God! Oh my God! Look at the fire! Oh my God! What are we gonna do now? What are we gonna do? We should have got out of here a long time ago. Oh my God. What time is it? Oh my God. Like, please sit somewhere here, but please. Please. They're coming to emergency traffic, Ronnie. It's just their drive time they're having to try to get through all the traffic of the people that are evacuating as well. So. They can send a helicopter or anything to come get us. A helicopter? Uh, something. I jump from a just set a rope down, please. Anything. I don't care. They they can't fly. They were actually going to do that to help fight the fires, but they can't fly because of the visibility from the smoke. Uh, you got you got the cold double. Oh fuck! We can't even get back in the cabin now. What's wrong? We don't have any power. Get back in the cabin. Are you, Are you all out of the vehicle now? Are you all out of the vehicle now? I will all step out of the vehicle, yeah. Ronnie? Yes, I see him. You, you do see him? Yes, I see him. Honk your horn. I see. I got a flash that they see. They see you? Did you say they see you, Ronnie? I see. I thought I hope so. I got a flashlight, an emergency flashlight pointing right at them. Okay. Just stay on the phone with me until they make contact with you, okay? My wife is going to go in a panic attack. Okay. Just tell her to try to take slow, deep breaths. When you're out, with them, okay. I see one fire. I'm with the fireman. Okay. Thank All right, Ronnie. I'll go ahead and let you go then, okay? As Ronnie awaited rescue, a woman named Krista Forden is pressing pen to paper at the Park Vista Hotel. She's writing her last words down, preparing to die. Um, these are the smoke masks that we were wearing. You can see how black and charred they are. She told her story to R. Jim Matheny. Surrounded by a ring of fire and staring into the eyes of death, with your last breath, what would your final words be? Krista Forden 
knows. We're surrounded by flames and we have no escape and we're suffocating. Trapped in a smoke-filled Park Vista hotel with her son and nephew, Forden secretly pressed pen to paper and prepared for the final punctuation of her life. The kids don't know I did this, but I wrote down my son's name, his age, and the state he's from, my nephew, my name, and that I was the mother. Identity, age, location. Forden then prepared for her last conscious breath as smoke overwhelmed the hotel. I knew we only had minutes and that we would eventually pass out. And I was thinking, I, I was so thankful that we would pass out so that they didn't have to. Sorry. Experience anything more devastating than what they had already experienced. While she prepared for the worst, Forden never gave up. And smoke cleared enough inside the hotel to give local rescue crews time to cut through the burning roadblocks and help Forden's family make an escape. So thankful for what they did for us. They stayed with us even though their families were going through tragedy and they didn't know where their families were. It's all gone. Forden fled through the flames and eventually found refuge at the wilderness at the Smokies. Her family has inhaled a lot of smoke, but they are still breathing. And although this was not their last gasp, if it had been, Forden knows what she would say. The final sentence of her farewell note, prepared to part ways in peace. And then I wrote to that say we love you and um, we are cuddling calm and at peace. I can't believe we lived through it. In Sevier County, Jim Athene, WBIR 10 News. The Summers family were also tourists. John, Janet, and their sons, Branson, and the twins, Jared and Wesley. They were in from Memphis for a rare family vacation to celebrate the twins' 22nd birthday. It was almost like a movie. I mean, it was, uh, it was tragic. Jim Summers is the brother of John Summers. And so this was uh, the boys, uh, the twins' birthday. And so there was a, um, uh, you know, this was a sort of a nice weekend gathering. By the time the family decides to evacuate, one of the boys has already seen the fire at the top of the mountain. Within 10 minutes, the family of five is in the car and trying to navigate the intense flames. We're in the car together, and uh, they came across a downed power line and a downed tree that completely crossed the road. And uh, they were unable to go any further, so they got out of the car. Uh, they could see the fire coming, and, and so they went around the tree and, and got back on the road, and uh, they described the wind picking up very intense, very severe, and just fire and ashes and uh, smoke uh, coming straight at them to where they couldn't see the road. They couldn't tell the difference between a route and a driveway off to the side. And so they're staggering, and it would clear up a bit, and they would take off running. And, and in that chaos, they get separated. At some point, while they're running through the smoke, the Younger boys, the twins, got separated from their older brother and their parents. Branson, who was the oldest, had stayed behind the parents who were not able to keep up with the younger kids. And uh, Johnny had, a, had been dealing with a lung condition for some period of time, and Janet was uh, acutely afraid of fire, and they were having a real rough time 
moving forward. And Branson was doing what he could to help him. Janet just collapses on the ground. And uh, Branson sits down with his mom and clutches her in his arms. Uh, and she's unresponsive. And he said, I'm going to stay here with you. Uh, I'll be here with you. Uh, and uh, his dad comes over. And his dad is also having real difficult time at that point. And Branson, uh, at some point, says, if I don't leave, I'm going to die. And he basically kisses his mom goodbye and says, I have to go. And he has to leave his mother and father there to die. They could not move. They, there was nothing Branson could do. I mean, Branson was a Boy Scout. I mean, he, he, he knew first aid, but there was no first aid. There was nothing he could do for them at that point in time. They were in the middle of the road, surrounded by fire, surrounded by smoke, surrounded by hell. Branson runs for his life through the flaming forest. As he's running, uh, he, he reaches a point uh, where a car passes him going in the opposite direction, and he beats on the back, and by this time he's burned. And they stop, and they let him in the back seat. And Branson is so burned, he takes off all of his clothes except for his underwear and socks. And he's laying in the back seat, and the car goes a little ways, and then the car can't go anymore. It just stalls. It stops. So they get out of the car, and when they're out of the car, walk away from it a little bit, the airbags explode, and then the engine goes. And now Branson basically thinks he's just going to die. So Branson just collapses in the middle of the road. As Branson lies naked and dying in the road, another car passes by. Inside are his two brothers, Jared and Wesley, who got separated in the chaos. In the short time they were apart, those two had to make their own horrifying decisions to survive. And they looked back and didn't see Branson, didn't see the parents, didn't see anybody. And they ended up going into a house. Uh, they had their father's phone, and uh, the landlord had been trying to call them, and at one point finds them, talks to them, and they explain where they are. And he says, well, you need to go inside, you need to kick all of the uh, water uh, uh, hydrants, and, and, and they all need to be turned on, and you need to pull all the sheets off the bed, get towels, comforters, whatever you can do, soak everything down. And the boys do this. They've got water. And, uh, and then all of a sudden they realize that the fire is now coming into the house. I mean, their house that they're in is on fire. And so they go back out the front door, and they see the car. Uh, that Branson was in. They didn't know Branson was in it, but they, they go up there and they hear the explosion and they run up there and they see their, their brother lying on the side of the road and they reach down and they get him and they say, Branson, we've got to go. We've got to go. We've got to keep going. We have to keep going. Branson finds the strength to stand. And the chalet village landlord calls again. He tells them where they are and says that they can make it to a creek at the bottom of the mountain. There's a street where they can find safety at. The brothers fall, stumble, and roll down the mountain, through trees, brambles, all the rest of it, and see the lights of police cars. And then ultimately got them to um, the first responders that were in the area. The boys are transported to the hospital at Vanderbilt, where Jim Summers meets them and cares for their many extensive injuries. Their faces look like they had been hit with a hit with a flamethrower. I mean, they they had uh, this goop all over them that the doctors had put on there. I call it magic goop because it was absolutely miraculous how it worked. But at, at the time I saw them, they were uh, obviously badly burned. As he's trying to care for his nephews, 
He's also intensely worried about what happened to his brother, John, and his sister-in-law, Janet. After a few days, a sheriff who took an interest in trying to find John and Janet Summers asks Jim if he can obtain their dental records. They found a couple of bodies later on, and he called me back that night, and he said, uh, it's John and Janet. And so um, I'm at the hospital at the time, and, and I walked into the doctor and the nurse, and I said, well, I said, I'm not going to go to each one of these individual kids and tell them their parents are dead. I said, I want all of them in the same room with me. In any event, they, uh, I had to tell them about their parents, and, uh, and uh, all of them, when they first got there, were worried sick about their parents. They knew they'd left them. They were just, they were sickened. You know, they were, now they realize they're alive, and now they're worried about their mom and dad, and, and, uh, and I had to tell them their mom and dad had perished in the fire. So uh, I knew that was going to be a horrible, 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 horrible uh, guilt for them to take with them that they survived and their parents didn't. Despite the stories of survival from Gatlinburg, when the sun rises across a still-smoking city the next day, 14 people lay dead among the ash. Good morning. We are at the LeConte Center in Pigeon Forge, and we're here with Mr. Michael Reed. And Michael, you and your family were evacuated off of Wiley Oakley Road uh, late yesterday. Tell us a little bit about what happened. Uh, my son and I, um, we, we weren't evacuated. Uh, we just heard on the news that there were fires on the spur. So my son and I left and uh, went to go see you know, where they were. And we got stuck in traffic um, about 8.15 last night. My wife called my cell phone and said that the flames were across the street from our house. And uh, I told her to call 911, and I haven't heard from her since, and I haven't seen her since. So when you were on the phone phone with your wife, and she obviously was sounding panic, what did you, you told her to call 911? What else did you tell her to do? I know you mentioned you only have, I have one vehicle, and you had that. I told her I loved her. She said she loved me, too. You know she does. So it was your wife that you haven't been able to get in touch with and also your two little girls. So tell us their names and, and their ages as well. Lily is nine. Um, I've got a picture of Lily. Uh, this is Lily. Chloe is 12. And tell me about, about your girls, Lily and Chloe. Uh, Lily is an angel. Um, just like her mother. Uh, Chloe just turned 12 three days ago. Um, and uh, this is my wife. This is Constance. Um, if anybody has seen them, uh, and if anybody can just please pray for us. Absolutely. We're all praying for you and uh, hoping that your family made it out safe and is just hopefully asleep and sleeping off some of the stress at one of the many evacuation centers. So we know that, that they're going to be uh, they're going to be OK. We're going to get their names. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, we're going to get their names on social media in their pictures as well. So if you have seen Constance or Lily or Chloe, uh, please let us know. He had his numbers. Please feel free, free to call WBIR as well and help reunite this father with, uh, with his girls. We'll send it back to you for now. 
This is Constance Reed's call to 911 from that night. Out of respect for Constance, Lily, Chloe, and Michael, we've omitted her voice from the 911 call. coming. My name is Philip Morris. I'm the pastor here at Parkway Church of God here in Sevierville, and we are honored to be the home church of the Reed family. I'd like to thank everyone who has been praying and thinking of them during this time. We have received confirmation through the Sevier County Sheriff's Department that the body of Constance has been recovered. We have not received official word yet about the daughters, Chloe and Lily. Our hearts are broken to receive this news. We ask for everyone to continue in prayer for this family. A fund is being set up through our congregation to help this family during this critical time. It is called the Reed Family Relief Fund. Information on how donations may be made can be found on our church website, www.parkwaychurchofgod.org, or through our church Facebook page. We appreciate the outpouring of love from around the nation, and specifically here in Sevier County. Your strong support means so much, and there this family is really going to need your support even more in the days and weeks to come. Thank you. God bless you. Constance Reed was a wife and mother. Her body was found near her two daughters, nine-year-old Lily and 12-year-old Chloe. A tree planted in front of their school, Pi Beta Phi Elementary, serves as a constant reminder. She, um, had very good instincts. She would protect them kids with her life, and that's what she done. In the days following the loss of Constance, Chloe, and Lily Reed, others across Gatlinburg were learning the same news about their own loved ones. 63-year-old Robert Hedgney loved music. He lived at the Traveler's Motel in Gatlinburg. It was destroyed by fire. Robert, he was one of my best friends. He was over every day. That's also where 59-year-old Pamela Johnson lived. She was known for her big hugs. 
they were both great people. They didn't hurt nobody. They was good to everybody. Pam would help anybody with anything. The Reverend Ed Taylor, he left behind a legacy of weddings in Gatlinburg. He was a pioneer in that industry and presided over 70,000 weddings. I now pronounce that you are husband and wife in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 70-year-old Alice Hagler moved to Gatlinburg with her son. Her co-workers at the incredible Christmas place say she was soft-spoken and loved to visit with guests. John and Marilyn Tegler traveled from Canada to their Gatlinburg vacation home. They just celebrated Thanksgiving with their daughter. And months later, their son Scott is still searching for answers to the question on so many minds, why? Lives have been turned upside down, either because we lost our family members or we lost our property, lost our homes. Brad Phillips retired from the federal government. He and his wife had just finished renovating their mountain home. Elaine Brown died in a car wreck fleeing from the flames. And Mae Vance. You can't tell her story without telling her husband's story. May and Jim were soulmates for six decades. I think it's safe to say that you all built a beautiful life together. There's no question about that. A lady, my banker in Sevier County, told us, told us, told me after the fire and after my wife's death when she found out about it, she said, you know, y'all were just one person. And we really were. And, you know, the Bible says when you get married, you become one person. And we really were. She knew what I was going to say before I said it. You know, sometimes I didn't like that, but that's the way it was. Jim has never shared what happened that night with anyone other than family and friends. He agreed to sit down with my colleague, John North, and me. My wife and I met when we were in the eighth grade. And we went to high school together at Hillsborough High School in Nashville. And we were sweethearts in high school. And we gra both graduated from Hillsborough High School. And then we went to college at Tennessee Tech. Same school. She did, and I did too. And we graduated from there. Our parents would not let us get married they told us if we got married, we was on our own. Now, I'm not sure how serious they were about that, but I wasn't about to test it. <laughs> so we didn't get married till after we graduated from college. She knew how to knit and sew and do all those sort of things. And I have to admit, she babied me too much. And I loved every bit of it. Then we had our two, two sons. Our oldest one is Jim Jr., and... Uh, our youngest one is Neil. Jim and May built their life together in Nashville, where Jim was a successful attorney. But when they wanted to get away from it all, they would pack up and they would head east to Gatlinburg. A friend always had an open-door policy at his cabin. And he saw one that was on, going on the market at auction block, and he kept calling me and said, you need to go look at that. And I kept telling him, why do I need a house when i got a key to yours? Well, anyway, I went to the auction and bought the house. That was sometime in 19, 2007. And, uh, of course, my wife, being like a lot of women are, once we bought it at the auction and 
went into the house, she said, well, this is going to change, and that's got to go, and this is going to do different, and, and that was fine. I had no problems with that. Jim describes in detail the library. He closes his eyes as if he's envisioning the oak paneling he hung himself and the shelves stacked with books. There was a big playroom with a pool table. On one side, a wall of glass windows looking into the wooded mountainside behind their home. 1072 Village Loop Road was their forever home. Until. We got to Gatlinburg. There was still a little smoke. We went on home. Well, there was a little smoke there, uh, but didn't amount a whole lot. And I asked some people about it, and they said, oh, well, there's a little fire over there in a park somewhere, but nothing to worry about, you know. They went about their day as they normally would. May was outside tending to her irises. Jim was helping out. The president of the Homeowners Association stopped by, and by then the smoke was getting a little thicker. I think that they're trying, they're, they're trying, to, they're asking people over at the top of Airport Road to voluntarily evacuate. That term I wasn't used to, and I said, what the heck is voluntary evacuate? You either evacuate or you don't. What does that mean? He said, I don't know. That's all they're saying. I said, okay. Around noon, a couple of workers from the power company came up the mountain to fix a transformer. Jim walked over to them. And he hesitated a minute, and he said, uh, no, I think you're all right. And that was about the end of that conversation, and we, draw, we walked on back to the house. And after a while, we worked a little bit more, and after a while, we went inside, and I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm uneasy. So I called the dispatcher's office, 911. Somebody answered. I, I, I think it was a woman, but I couldn't swear to that. And I, I asked her, I said, are we in danger up there? And she said, well, what you, where do you live? What's your address? And I said, 1072 Village Loop Drive in Gatlinburg. And she hesitated me. She said, oh, we think you're safe right there. I said, okay, thank you. End of conversation. Late that afternoon, the Vances decided to head down the mountain for dinner. They went to one of their favorites, the Cracker Barrel and Pigeon Forge. She had chicken and dumplings. She loves them. <laughs> and I, I had uh, Uncle Herschel special. <laughs> I mean, I just did. Yeah, right. And so we had a nice meal, and we got in the car and came back. After dinner, they made their way back home. I said, well, I think I'll go downstairs to the bedroom and watch a little TV and read, which I often did. We had a big bedroom and had two big lounge chairs and a table, you know, it was just comfortable. And I went down there and I, I, had, I had not put on my pajamas or changed clothes or anything. I just sat down and started reading and next thing I heard her scream, come quick. That's the exact word she said. And she was in the very next room, which was a big room, which had a pool table in it. And it had a, all backwards class windows. And I could see the fire coming up the hill. And I said, I, I told her, I said, come quick, grab your medicines. It wasn't but just, you know, 25 feet from my bedroom. We got to go. And I said, don't take the elevator. We walked 
through the pool room, up the stairs. Now we're on ground level. She's behind me. She's got the dog in her arms. We go out the front door. And by this time, the house is on fire behind us. And I got in, and the way the car is, I had to pull out so she could open the door on the passenger side, and she got in. Put the dog in the back seat, and I said, fasten your seatbelt, we've got to go. By this time, the entire house was on fire. Now, the electricity was still working. The outside lights was all on. We put up a couple of Christmas decorations for been coming up to Christmas. They were all on. The fire was on the other side, which is the bank next to the community center. Uh, and we turned to the right, headed towards Wild Elkley. And I told us, and it was at this time there was lots of smoke, fire on both sides. And I didn't know you could go either to the right on Wild Elkley or you could go to the left on Wild Elkley. It looked like to me the fire was coming up Wiley Oakley. So I turned left on Wiley Oakley and turned on uh, the next street. I can't think of it, but I will uh, in a minute. It'll come to me. Well, a tree fell across the street, burning. I couldn't go. I had turned around the middle of the street which I did, and she was helping me. Um, you, you can imagine a big F-150 pickup truck having to turn around. This wasn't a little vehicle. It was a great vehicle, though. <clears throat> we turned around and went back up, just a matter of feet, to Wiley Oakley, headed down the other side of Wiley Oakley, towards, towards the Welcome Center and the, and the uh, Spur. Fires on both sides. Houses are burning on both sides. Cars are burning on both sides. Wires was on the ground. I, wrote, I put the car in four-wheel drive. I couldn't see the road. There was so much smoke. I had to roll the window down on the driver's side to look at it. And I told my wife, I said, you're going to have to help me with your side because I don't want to run off that side because if I did, I was going to go into the woods and that would have been the end. So I'm looking at the curb where the gravel and the pavement comes together. The Ford has a light that comes down off your rear view mirror that will show that. I'm looking at it with my head hanging out, driving. <clears throat> and we went a ways. I don't know exactly how far, but the smoke lessened, and I could see the yellow line. Once I could see the yellow line right down the road, I, sa I said, I can see the yellow line. We're going to make it now. And I looked over, and she slumped down. Well, there wasn't any way I could stop. I reached over and touched her. Excuse me. On her head, and it was just, there was no resistance. It was just loose. I hollered at her, never said a word. You know, I prayed. I couldn't stop. And got down to the spur, and there was a policeman standing in the middle of the road. I rolled her side of the window down, and I said, I think my wife's had a heart attack. And he said, pull over there. And I did. 
and I could see him coming after me, coming behind me in my rearview mirror. And he had his had his microphone on his shoulder, and he was talking to us. I don't know what he was doing, but he was talking to a Russian to get to us. He came to her side, and I opened the door and started performing CPR. Well, I got out of the car, started that way, and some gentle, it was dark now. Some man that I don't know, didn't know then, don't know to this day, he was a black man. He was an angel. He grabbed me in a big bear hug, and I'm a pretty good-sized fella. And he said, you don't need to go over there. She's in good hands. You just don't need to go over there, because I was trying to. He wasn't going to let me. And he didn't, and he prayed with me as we stood there. I don't know how long that went on. In a few minutes, the ambulance came up, and of course they went out, well, they went over there, and he wouldn't still turn me loose. <clears throat> and after a while, the policeman came over and said, oh, they're going to take her to, the, to uh, Good Luck Hospital. Can you drive? And I said, well, at first I said, I'm not sure I can. But I didn't have any alternative, so I said, yes, I can drive. He said, we'll just fall in right behind the ambulance <clears throat> to the hospital, which I did, all the way to the hospital. When I got to the hospital, <clears throat> a security guard would not let me park behind them. Uh, he was determined I wasn't going to do it. He made me pull my car into a parking place, which I did. My pet dog's still in the back seat now. Well, I got out and I went in and they knew who I was. And they took me right back into the emergency room, not, to, not where the waiting room is, but in the room outside the room where they had her, and they were working on her. And some little nurse, I don't know who she was, she came up to me and hugged me. And she ran her hair, her hand through my hair like that, and I said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm brushing the ashes out of your hair. Of course, she asked me if I was all right, and I said, yeah. The hair on my left arm was burned off. I wasn't burned, but the hair was gone. I didn't notice it then. I noticed somebody noticed it later and pointed that to me. And, of course, I used my cell phone and called my son in Nashville, and he was immediately on his way. At one point, the nurse actually put, get me a chair and put me in the room at, the, at her feet where I could sit. She never regained conscious. And after that went on for a while, the doctor came out. There was a little bit of commotion, uh, and I didn't understand it. And... They brought somebody out. It wasn't her on a 
gurney with a bunch of ambulance people and machines and everything hooked up. And the doctor came out and I said, what's going on? He said, we're moving our critically care patients to Knoxville. And I said, why? And he said, because we're afraid the fire's going to get to us. So they brought her out and they put her in the ambulance. Well, I went to the car, of course, and got in the car and the security officer was there and he wouldn't let me leave. He said, you don't need to go after that ambulance. He said, they're going to have the sirens going and running red lights. You don't need to do that. You need She's as good a hand as she can get in. You just need to go take your time and get there. Well, I can't say that I took my time. By the time Jim got to UT Medical Center in Knoxville, there was little more he could do than wait. She still was hooked up to machines. And the doctor had said, look, we're going to, if she's, if everything, if she's okay in the morning, we're going to do a, a scan. We, we're concerned about her not getting enough oxygen. And I said, okay. And uh, we were both there, my two sons and me, when she died, which was a few minutes after midnight which was my birthday. And I miss her. That's what happened. Here now, our prayer for Elaine Brown, Alice Hagler, Robert Bobby Allen Hesney, Pamela Johnson. Hug her from us, Lord. Bradley. William Phillips, Constance Reed, Chloe Reed, Lily Reed, Janet Summers, John Summers, Reverend Ed Taylor, John Tegler, Marilyn Tegler, May Evelyn Norin Vance. You don't, people don't understand and you'll never understand until you're in this boat. When you know somebody for 63 years, you're married to him for 53 years, she knows what you're going to say before you say it. She knows what you're going to do before you do it. And she's gone. But then you're lost and lonely. Loneliness, I believe, is the worst disease in the world. People try not to make you lonely. People try to help you. My children want me to come visit them. They got their families. They got their careers. I'm lonely every day, and I miss her so, not well forever. No, I'll know we're going to die. I mean, that's preordained, no question about it. We're all going to die. But, but, and to die normally is expected but to die like that is not all they had to do any of them is say you need to leave we would have gone 
Whether they ran down the mountain, hid in a creek, or escaped by car, the survivors and the families of the ones who didn't make it off the mountain alive that night have one unifying question. Why did no one warn us? Well, they didn't give anybody that lived up there any warning. Not even on the news. We were watching. That's next time on Inferno. Inferno is a podcast from WBIR Channel 10, a Techna company, hosted by Robin Wilhoyt and Madison Stacy. This episode was written and edited by Madison Stacy, with additional storytelling by Robin Wilhoyt. Executive producers Allison Duff, Tanya Burke, Madison Stacy, Lauren Hoare, and Jeremy Campbell. Associate producer Daniel Bignot. Original reporting contributed by Jim Matheny, Brittany Bade, and John North.